You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 117. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Annette Berkowitz, an author and educator focused on wildlife conservation who has written the new book, Confessions of an Accidental Zoo Curator. We talked with Annette about her path towards becoming a key architect of what has now become a worldwide standard for wildlife and conservation education programs. Annette worked for three decades with the Wildlife Conservation Society and took a unique approach towards designing conservation education programs, an approach that has been hugely successful in reaching students and zoo visitors all across the globe. Welcome, Annette. Good morning, Matthew. I am Annette Liebeskin Berkowitz. Currently, I am an author, um, but I retired some years ago from my 34-year career uh, retiring from the Wildlife Conservation Society in New York as the Senior Vice President for Education, a career which I dearly loved and hated to retire from. But my husband, who had been re- retired for many years before, persuaded me it would be a good idea for me to finally pursue my writing interests and retire. So I did. And I'm glad that you took that step because uh, you've written this wonderful new book called Confessions of an Accidental Zookeeper. Um, And, you know, I want to start off this conversation sort of at the entry point that you use in the book, right? And and you you start off the book telling a series of stories about some of your early interactions with animals. Um, and, And these are not the types of interactions that one would generally expect from someone who would go on to commit her life to working with and conserving wildlife. So uh, I mean, t- tell us a little bit about, about your attitude towards wildlife and, and animals uh, when you were growing up. Okay, thanks for asking. I'll just correct my book title as Confessions of an Accidental Zoo Curator. I was never a zookeeper in, in the true meaning of the word keeper. In any event, to respond to your question about my childhood background with animals, I quite literally didn't have any. Uh, I think it's important for the readers of my book to read the author's note, which sometimes people skip. I've skipped it uh, on occasion myself. But the author's note is really what provides the context for uh, understanding me and my relationship with animals. And that is that my parents were survivors of the Holocaust, uh, having lost 86 members of their family and discovering this upon our arrival from Kyrgyzstan and their native country of Poland. Uh, so uh, the situation, uh, the, the life situation was really dire. It was an, one of the most industrial cities in Poland. It, in fact, it was called the Polish Manchester. So it was not a place uh, with a lot of greenery and opportunities to see wildlife. Though I did go to the zoo uh, when um, a visitor from France, some family member, uh, came for a very rare visit. It was communist Poland. It was very hard to travel there. In any case, uh, when I was five, 
I was taken uh, to the zoo in Łódź, Poland. Uh, English readers will pronounce it as Ludge. And, and there, uh, my parents wanted to take a picture of me next to the elephant and who was just walking around the zoo, from what I remember. And they stood me next to the elephant, and I was terrified, uh, having had no experience with animals. So, so that wasn't a good start. And, of course, uh, um, <laughs> my mother had um, attempted to assuage my loneliness by buying me uh, a pet, which I won't really reveal because I want readers to discover what happened. Uh, needless to say, uh, I didn't get along with this pet, and I was punished by never getting one again. So it wasn't until I was a college student that I acquired Bully the Bullfrog, who became my first experience with wildlife. And I fell in love with the idea of observing him and his development, even though it was slow. So um, that's how I started. And then the impossible happened. I got a job at the Bronx Zoo. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, uh, tell us the story about how you ended up with this job at the Bronx Zoo, because it's sort of coincidental, right, that that you ended up there. Actually, yes. Um, I had two young children. When my younger one turned four, I was itching to get back to the world of work. But I didn't want to work too far away from home. I wanted to be on hand in case of any emergencies. So I started uh, thinking it would be nice to get a job that's not very far from home in the Bronx. And I noticed there was an advertising campaign on the subway uh, for kind of higher level jobs, uh, photographs of individuals saying, I got my job through the New York Times. And I hadn't thought of searching in the New York Times. At that time, we didn't have uh, Monster and the Web and all those other job search uh, opportunities. So I said, okay, I'll send off some letters to the New York Times. I sent them off uh, in in response to one particular advertisement that um, called for a volunteer coordinator in a Bronx cultural institution. And I thought, gee, uh, what Bronx cultural institution could it be? There weren't very many. The zoo never occurred to me. I I sent off the resume, and a while later, I received the call from someone um, identifying herself. She was a secretary at the Bronx Zoo, and I said, the Bronx Zoo? Why are you calling me? I almost hung up. I thought it was the... The wrong number, and she she read to me something from my introductory letter, and I thought, really? <laughs> and she said, Well, we don't we don't uh, identify ourselves as the Bronx Zoo because we get a lot of crazy animal nuts applying, so we just uh, have a very low profile, and we call ourselves a Bronx Cultural Institution. So that really piqued my curiosity, and I ended up uh, scheduling an interview and meeting with a very renowned uh, herpetologist, uh, a very a very uh, daunting personality. I was very nervous, and I thought, what am I doing here? How in the world can I get the job? And I described the interview in, in quite some detail in the book, but uh, the bottom line of the interview is when this interviewer reached for a thick tome of zoological books, I, I was uh, 
nearly certain that this job interview was over because I hadn't remembered any of my zoology at that moment, and I hadn't taken that many courses in zoology. So he opened the book, and he said, I want to ask you a question. And I, I still remember the butterflies in my stomach. And, and he pointed to an animal, and he said, what is this? And I looked at it, and I said, it's the Przewalski horse. It, it was uh, the Mongolian horse, and it was named um, – had a Polish name. It was actually named after a, a, a Polish general named Shavalski. And of course, I, having grown up in Poland, I knew how to pronounce it perfectly. And he said, oh, so that's how you say it. I've been wondering all my life how to say that name. <laughs> and he was very, very taken with that. That's when he realized that I was not U.S. born and that I had born, been born in Kyrgyzstan. And he became very, very curious about me. And the interview didn't last much more, uh, but shortly after I got an invitation to join the staff. <laughs> what were your early experiences like working at the Bronx Zoo? I mean, this was the, the early 1970s. Zoos were very different than, than what we think of as as sort of the, the setting of a zoo um, these days. I, I mean, you know, what sort of stood out early on? Well, uh, there were two uh, contradictory things that stood out to me. One was uh, there were very few women uh, employed at the zoo. But the second, uh, which uh, really speaks to the incredible traditions of the Wildlife Conservation Society, an education department had been formed there uh, decades before I came. It, It didn't have much and didn't do much. But the idea that education could be uh, one of the tools of conservation had occurred uh, to the management of the Wildlife Conservation Society back in the 30s, it was, I believe. So there was an education department per se, which probably few, if any, zoos had at the time. But it wasn't doing very much. When I arrived uh, at the zoo... The offices uh, of the education department were in a basement of the Heads and Horns building. And one of the first things I saw were kind of partly rusting metal cabinets in the hallway. And I was so curious about what was in them. Eventually, I got somebody to unlock the rusty locks on them. And they had very strange uniforms uh, that looked kind of mini dresses. Uh, and strange little pillbox hats that look like uh, maybe stewardess uniforms. And I searched around to find somebody who could tell me what were these and why were they there. It turned out that they were uh, the education program some years before I had even arrived. Uh, There were zoo girls that went around the grounds with animals, showing animals to people. I don't know how safe it was and how effective it was. But there was the rudimentary idea of education. So that was a good thing. But women were few and far in between, and most of it uh, was in in really low-level positions. Unlike today, where many women run zoos and are curators, so the evolution of the field has been absolutely phenomenal. 
And you've certainly played uh, an important role in the evolution of that field. I mean, I'm sure when, you know, once you start a new job, you're sort of learning the ropes and sort of figuring out what your boundaries are. But, um, you know, what, what was that point where you really started to sort of take things into your own hands and shape these educational programs at the Bronx Zoo? Well, I'll tell you what, um, a person in a new job, uh, should should learn the boundaries of the job rather quickly. I discovered quickly that there were no boundaries, and the reason for that was education was uh, sort of a stepchild at the time, and nobody much cared what education did. So I realized there was a huge amount of potential to do a lot of things. I was very, very interested in education uh, even before I came to the zoo. I had earned a degree in educational administration and supervision on top of my biology background. So uh, education and its effectiveness were uh, in my mind. And I saw how animals get people excited and interested. And I thought, gee, if we could harness that excitement and marry it with some good educational strategies the potential is huge. So uh, I started experimenting with all sorts of programs, uh, and and nobody said no. <laughs> <laughs> so so that that, that was uh, the benefit of, of being neglected. But when we came up with some really effective models, and later on in my career, when I became uh, quite adept at securing funding, because a lot of good things are, are not free. Uh, you need you need support. You need staff, uh, and and if you're able to secure your own support for that, uh, then uh, there was a lot of attention from the administration and from the trustees because suddenly our programs were successful. They began to obtain awards, national awards, national recognition. Um, programs were copied by other zoos. Uh, and <laughs> I have to tell you a funny story uh, that relates to this. There was a woman that worked at the zoo when I first came there, or shortly thereafter. She was what I would call strictly an animal person, because people in the zoo world, uh, as I say in my book, are divided into two categories, basically. It's the animal people that have sort of an innate appreciation and sort of a, almost a spiritual contact with animals and the rest of the ordinary mortals. And this woman was in this category. She was in this category. And uh, when she was uh, advised that I would be starting a camp program, a zoo camp program, and that uh, she would need to assist in some aspects of it, she thought it was an insane idea. Uh, she said, well, okay, so long as I personally don't have anything uh, to do with it. Now, fast forward uh, 35 years, I heard from her just a couple of weeks ago, and she said, she she now is in Tucson, Arizona, she said, I would have never believed when you started Zoo Camp that it would be everywhere, including here in Tucson, and be one of the most successful zoo programs in the country. So, it takes time. Innovations take time to take root. There's sort of innovations that, that you discuss in your book on, on multiple levels, right? And I mean, one of the, the most important ones is, is education, right? And the importance of, of using 
uh, zoos and, and the resources there and, and the animals as an educational resource. But one of the other really important facets to that is conservation. Um, and, you know, that's something that, that, you know, early on in the history of zoos, I mean, that was definitely not something that, that people necessarily thought about. It uh, uh, wasn't really always associated with, with zoos. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, sort of how these ideas of conservation, like, started to become integrated into the educational programs you were doing and where that sort of led and, and, and what that was like early on. Okay, that's a very good question, and and it's an interesting one because uh, if you were to draw a diagram and and draw a circle around uh, conservationists and a circle around uh, educators, uh, the two wouldn't have had very much of an overlap. In fact, because uh, every endeavor requires financial support, not too long ago, and I think it continues today to some degree in some places, there is uh, a kind of a, a, a hidden struggle between conservation, field conservationists and educators for support. So uh, in, in the case of the Wildlife Conservation Society, where I spent so much time of, uh, in my career, uh, one way that we managed to marry conserva- field conservation and education, uh, pr- probably the, the best example I could give you, although there are many, uh, is in the construction of the Congo Gorilla Forest. Uh, we created a simulated environment uh, that uh, has been emulated the world over. People, uh, urban people who will never get uh, – to the Congo or any other places where uh, you can find uh, the suite of species that you see on that exhibit, people never get there. They could see them in in in, in an amazing setting that that's very good at emulating the natural setting. But we said, okay, so people will fall in love with these uh, gorillas and and the other species on exhibit. And now, how do we get them involved in caring? about these animals beyond just having good feelings. So we came up with a strategy where there were um, messages throughout the exhibit that informed people. And we tried to create a kind of a magical mix where the, the emotional reaction to the exhibit would be connected to some factual information. And then when people came to the last area of the exhibit, they had an opportunity to decide based on their experience. They were presented with several field conservation projects saying, based on what you now know, where would you like your admission fee to go? So here we gave them a choice. It was their money. What did they feel uh they wanted to do with it in terms of where to place it for conservation. And that was a very important step because that money then was in fact directed to field conservation. So it was, uh, in in my view, kind of a a perfect marriage of conservation and education. Now, people can't always support conservation uh, financially. Some people just can't afford to do that, even though the admission fee was low and, and most of the people who came to the exhibit 
uh, of course, uh, paid for it and did it very happily. But there are other ways people can uh, provide support to field conservation so long as they are led into that direction by education. I'm super lucky uh, here in Boise, Idaho. We have uh, a really wonderful zoo here called Zoo Boise, um, mm-hmm. and, and they have a program uh, uh, very similar to that. Um, they, uh, a percentage of the, the entry fee is donated to uh, field conservation um, efforts, and it's it's the same type of setup. As you enter the zoo, you get to choose. They uh, they they give you three options as sort of where you want that small amount of money. You know that percentage of, of your entry fee to, to go which conservation project. And um, yeah, it's 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 definitely a neat way to sort of easily connect education and conservation. Uh, it's neat to see that that has spread and become very common. I agree with you, and it's it's very empowering to the visitor because they feel they can do something with their new awareness. So you told us this story about how sort of the reasoning behind, you know, why you put this application in to to get this job at the Bronx Zoo. And it was because you uh, uh, were looking for a job that was close to home, right, where you lived in the Bronx. Um, But, I mean, this job did lead to uh, uh, these opportunities that allowed you to to travel all over the world and, and, and to get involved in some of these conservation projects. What was the first opportunity that you had to travel as a part of your work? As you know, the Wildlife Conservation Society has field biologists stationed in, in dozens of countries around the world. And and some of the field conservationists are receptive uh, to education and others are not. But here we had a field biologist who's very well known. He is he is uh, the Indiana Jones of conservation, we could say. <laughs> uh, Alan Rabinowitz, uh, who studies the the world's cats. He was working in Belize, and he realized the the lack of knowledge on the part of the population about uh, its 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 fauna. So he became aware of uh, several programs, curricular programs that we developed that that were beginning to be used nationwide with great success. And he said uh, that the government in in Belize was looking to revise their science curriculum, and wouldn't it be great if we could get these curricula that introduce wildlife and and marry it with science study wouldn't that be great if 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 it could work in belize so we were invited uh by uh, the ministry of education in belize so um we thought well it's it's a small country so it's it's a good um place uh, to do an experiment. Uh, I was concerned about the the cross-cultural replicability of the programs, but uh, we we ended up going to Belize uh, and uh, to to do an experimental set of teacher workshops. And here I want to digress for one moment and say that um, um, in the latter years of my career, I realized that as much as we loved working with children and seeing the inspiration uh, that animals could produce and the engagement and, and study, I realized that there aren't enough zoo educators and there never, ever will be 
to reach all the children that could benefit from this. So my thought was we need to uh, have an ability to scale this up. And the only way to scale it up was to train teachers and make teachers passionate about the subject. And they could in turn reach many more students than we could. So we began stressing uh, teacher training programs uh, and making them the most important important programs in our agenda. So that's when we went to Belize, we, we trained teachers and they were so excited when, uh, you know, we featured uh, a, a local species in the workshops and uh, we, we brought uh, each, each carton of curriculum materials weighed about 40 pounds. And these people didn't have cars. They walked to the bus and they carried the curriculum boxes on their heads. And I thought, these people are so excited. There isn't, there isn't anything better to inspire their students. And they use them. And uh, subsequent to that, uh, uh, one of uh, our other premier uh, scientists, um, Dr. George Schaller, who many people know has done some of the earliest studies of the gorilla and snow leopards. And he, he's been in the most remote habitats around the world studying wildlife. He was uh, the foremost panda man at, at the time. And he, he had been in China working in the Sichuan province. He dropped by my office one day and said, you know, I, I heard about that program in Belize. You, you ought to bring it to China. And I thought, well, uh, you can't just drop an educational program into China. He said, look, he is, here's my contact. He's the head of the Chinese Institute of Zoology, Professor G. Uh, call him uh, and, and see what can be done. So I did speak to Professor G shortly thereafter, and he said, yes, you should come. You should bring a curricula. We'll see what we can do. And all the while I was thinking, the Chinese aren't going to be happy to introduce something Western to pollute the minds of, of school kids. How is this going to work? But we, we went down with a team, and they undertook a year-long study of, of our curriculum materials to decide whether they would consider training teachers and including them in, in their schools in the Sichuan province initially. And a year later, we got a call that, yes, they would like to do this, and they've translated the materials into Chinese, and would we come to do workshops? And it, it was truly incredible. We, 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 we did do workshops in some of the remotest part of uh, Sichuan, and then we came back to China to see the teachers implementing uh, the activities, and it was truly heartwarming to see young teachers with classes as large as 50 or 55 students execute all the activities, all the experiments, everything in the curriculum with, with, with such grace and with such excitement. We said, okay, this could really work. Now we have to negotiate with the Minister of Education to see if we could take it wider. And eventually we did. So... I hope that answers your question. It does. And, and that's I, I really love hearing about your sort of approach towards, like you said, scaling up these education programs and not just being like one, 
you know, representative from a zoo in the U.S. who shows up and gives a few talks, right? Like, no, spreading it around and and training teachers to really take it to the next level and and reach a much larger group of of students. Eventually, we started uh, bringing groups of um, people who are interested in in what we were doing from India. We developed uh, a, a kind of a fellowship where we had young people come uh, to New York because that that was a, a, a nice sweetener to the program, and and they we trained them to be trainers, and they subsequently went back to India and and, and trained other teachers. So we we were constantly looking for that multiplier effect. We we did that in Papua New Guinea and in in Bhutan and Cuba and lots of other places. Back to New York and, and the Bronx, you know, one of the first things that, that you mentioned uh, when you're talking about, you know, getting this, this new job working at the Bronx Zoo was the fact that you were one of very few women working there. And I would, you know, maybe speculate that there was, you know, that the, the staff at that at the Bronx Zoo at that stage was maybe lacking in diversity as well. I, I guess I'm sort of wondering what connections there are between bringing more diversity into um, our zoos and how that's connected to education programs. I think diversity is essential, and we were based in the Bronx and a very diverse community, but I have to say that um, as the years went on, uh, some of it might have been external prodding, uh, some of it was uh, internal thoughts by people who were on staff, uh, the zoo uh, began um, a number of uh, kind of community engagement and career ladder programs, and it's borne tremendous fruit. Uh, uh, there is uh, a series on the zoo on television now that shows staff behind the scenes, and uh, uh, you don't need a PhD in sociology to see the diversity uh that exists at the Bronx Zoo. I, I think it exists other places too, although um, I, I couldn't speak uh, about other places. I know at the zoo, eventually, uh, the light, <laughs> the light dawned, and and um, yes, uh, diversity was uh, very much made an important aspect of the operation. I can only assume that the types of education programs that you talked about launching in other parts of the world, those must have been tested out like closer to home initially. To me, that's, you know, that sort of seems like like the first step towards uh, increasing diversity and, and, and bringing, you know, more people into the fold and getting them interested in conservation and in wildlife. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh uh, quite early in my career, I went over to my uh, alma mater at the Bronx High School of Science in, in the Bronx. It's one of the premier science-based uh, public high schools in the country. And I approached a principal and I offered them a, I don't remember, I think it was an 18-session um, animal behavior course at the Bronx Zoo. But I said I would do it only if they could get the New York City Board of Education to approve it for graduation credits, not just for fun, of course, it would be fun, but I, I wanted the the course to to carry uh, credits towards graduation. And I thought, oh, uh, well, the 
New York City Board of Education is, you know, it's a bureaucracy. I don't know. I don't know if we could do this. Well, they eventually did do it. And we had um, this incredible animal behavior course with, with kids, you know, from the Bronx. And, and many of them have pursued uh, careers in the field. Uh, I, I know even today the zoo has uh, a teen uh, engagement program. These are all kids from the community. Uh, teen volunteers. So yes, community engagement gets uh, young people from the community interested in the field and then pursue the field. Yes. You know, looking back at this this thirty five year career that that you had and all of the achievements that you've had, which you've you know discussed a number of them, and and all the connections that you made between education and and conservation and wildlife all around the globe. What really stands out as sort of an achievement that really sort of sticks in your mind and you feel like is, is, is representative of the scope of that career and what you were able to accomplish? Well, as I look at uh, programming in, in zoos uh, around the country and uh, even around the world, I see that a lot of the kinds of programs that we initiate at the Bronx Zoo are now commonplace. Parent engagement programs, zoo camps, teacher workshops, all of those things, they are now the standard. You know, you even take a small zoo, if it has uh, AZA accreditation, it has these education programs. Uh, I remember when I went to my first uh, conference of um, the AZA, the American Association of Zoos and Aquariums, uh, I was I was the lone educator. People would say, what do you do? And I would say, I'm in education. They would laugh and say, what, do you teach the gorillas? What do you do? Uh, people in the field had no idea what it was. And, and now such a thing would be completely absurd. So that that's uh, very re- rewarding for me to see that education has uh, been not only acknowledged but made an important uh, resource for conservation in, in zoos around the world. Where do you think folks sh- should start if they're interested in, in, in getting involved in this kind of work and doing something good, right, sharing some of this knowledge about conservation with kids? Well... I guess uh, it depends on, you know, uh, whether we're talking about a parent or a teacher or just an interested uh, member of the community. I would think if we're talking to parents, it would be to encourage uh, curiosity, to encourage observation. Uh, I'm just starting to work on on a little guide for parents on uh, how you could make a zoo experience much more fun and much more educational, not in the overt sense like, hey, you're going there to learn, but no, to have fun. Uh, Kids are great scientists. Kids notice things. Uh, Parents may not always have an answer to a question, but they could explore together. Uh, and, and that's uh, a good way, a zoo visit is a really excellent way to, to nurture uh, a curiosity. Uh, I, I don't know of any kid who would say, no, I don't want to go to the zoo. So, yes, take that opportunity and make the most of it. Don't run around uh, and spend, uh, you know, the classic uh, 60 seconds in front of an exhibit and move on. Uh, do something to challenge the kids' powers of observation. 
for teachers, I, I, I think if you're a teacher who wants to have excitement in the classroom, if you, if you want to uh, have your students adore what they're doing, uh, go to your local zoo, speak to your educators, uh, explore some opportunities for programs for, for, for real engagement. Don't, don't just go to the zoo with your class and turn the kids loose. I had seen that many times during my career, teachers saying, you know, do your research project. Research, I put it in air quotes, and they go and have, uh, you know, a coffee and, uh, and, and chat with their peers where the kids are just running around loose without any purpose. That that's not a zoo visit, and and members of the community, many zoos, uh, to to my great delight, have programs for adults. They have programs for parents, how to how to support parents um, and their child's uh, uh, wildlife awareness and science achievement. So th- there's a lot people could do, but they need to liaise with their local zoo. And if the local zoo doesn't happen to have a program. People could come in and propose a program and point to models that exist elsewhere. It's really wonderful for me. You know, I mentioned that that I live in in, in Boise, Idaho, and, and we have a really fantastic zoo here in in Boise. And and it's just it's been it's really wonderful for for, for me to uh, you know being as familiar with with uh, the zoo here in Boise as I am to hear about. Uh, how a lot of these concepts and how a lot of the educational programs that I see here and, and, and that I've experienced with uh, with my young son to see like where sort of the origins of, of a lot of those projects are. Um, so it's, it's been really fantastic chatting with you, uh, Annette. Your book, again, is, is Confessions of an Accidental Zoo Curator, which will be out on Earth Day, um, April 22nd. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to chat with us and, and to come on to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Matthew. And I just want to let your listeners know that the book is available in paperback uh, and on Kindle on Amazon. And that if uh, your listeners would like to know more about me and more about my uh, other books and writing, they could simply get on my website, AnnetteBerkowitz.com. It's as easy as that. And thank you so much for hosting podcasts uh, that relate to conservation. There aren't enough of them. Thank you, Matthew. All right. That was our conversation with Annette Berkowitz, wildlife educator and author of the new book, Confessions of an Accidental Zoo Curator. Annette's passion for conservation and wildlife are clearly demonstrated in this conversation and it was really wonderful to learn about the origins of many zoo-based conservation programs that I've been exposed to here in Boise, Idaho, where I live. If you want to learn more about Annette's work as a wildlife educator, you've got to read her new book. It's full of amazing stories from her time working at the Bronx Zoo and with the Wildlife Conservation Society. The book is full of humor and inspiration, and it's definitely worth the read. Check out the show notes page for this episode to secure your copy of Annette's new book and to learn more about her ongoing conservation work. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC117. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.